Well, good morning, Gateway family. Good to see you on this beautiful spring morning that God has given to us. As we continue through the journey through the Gospel of John, let me ask you to find John chapter 18 this morning on your Bible app or in your copy of God's Word there in your hand. As we begin in John 18 this morning, we're beginning a section of the Gospel of John, a new section that sometimes is called the Passion Narrative. These are the events surrounding Jesus' arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. And in God's providence for us, as we hit sermon number 51 in the Gospel of John, we're hitting the Passion Narrative right before Easter. And so today and over the next four weeks, we get a chance to look together at what happens surrounding the, what we call the Passion of the Christ. What we're going to see over these next four or five weeks is, in one sense, a story of tragedy. It's a story of great betrayal, of great sin, a story really of great suffering as we look to the cross. But it's also really a story of triumph. It's a story of resurrection, of new life, of forgiveness, of Christ being victorious. And one author I read described what we're going to see over these next five weeks really well. He said this is a story of triumph through tragedy. It's a story of triumph through tragedy. And friends, as we come over these next five weeks, we're coming to stories that for many of us is very, very familiar to us. My prayer for myself and for you as well is that God will give us grace to see this with fresh eyes of faith, that the familiarity of what happens around the Easter account will not cause us to just kind of shrug our shoulders and go through the normal routine, but that we'll recover the awe and the wonder of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And we begin that this morning in John chapter 18. We come to the arrest of Jesus. And as we come to this familiar account to you of the rest of Jesus, there's two things I want you to listen for as we begin to read the text this morning. The first one is this. In the midst of Jesus' arrest, how do we see his power? Because Jesus is not just passive here. As we read John 18, be looking for how do we see Jesus' power, his sovereignty, his control of all things on display here. And then number two, I want you to be looking for how do people respond to the obvious display of his power. So how do we see Jesus' power and how do people respond to it? So John chapter 18, can I ask you to stand please in honor of the reading of the word of God. If you're a visitor, I'm reading out the English Standard Version. The words will also be on the screen for you. John chapter 18, starting in verse 1. When Jesus has spoken these words... He went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill what the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. And struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officer of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray as we come to this account of the rest of the Lord Jesus. God, would you give us fresh eyes of faith to see what's going on here? Would you stretch us? Would you grow us as we see your great sovereign power? And we see what we're supposed to respond to in belief as we're confronted today with, once again, unbelief in this account. So God, have your way. Holy Spirit, come, move in our midst. Open our eyes to the wonders of this text. 
and apply it to our lives as only you can. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, before we talk about Jesus' power or how people respond to it, I want us to first make sure we understand the context of what's going on here. So go back with me to verse number 1 of this chapter so we see what's going on. John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. When Jesus spoke in these words, what are these words? That's what we looked at the last about four or five weeks. John 17, the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. When Jesus had finished praying for his disciples and praying for you and for me and all those other followers who would come, he now leaves with his disciples and goes to this particular location. It's a garden in the Kidron Valley. We know from the Gospel of Luke, this is on the Mount of Olives. So he goes out the east side of Jerusalem, goes outside the city to the Mount of Olives to a garden. It's a place that he normally went. We know that in verse number 2. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Jesus does what he often does with his disciples. He withdraws from the crowds in the city. He goes east of Jerusalem, out to the Mount of Olives, and to a garden there to withdraw for the evening. But that night was going to be very different than most of his quiet evenings in the garden with his disciples. This was on Thursday night of that week that we've been looking at for quite some time now. And look at what happens on that Thursday night, verse number 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, when they with lanterns and torches and weapons. You'll recall Judas is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was one who walked with Jesus for three years. He's one who had been with him all along. He's seen firsthand all the miracles. He had heard all the authoritative teaching of Christ. But on this Thursday night, he leaves the fellow disciples and he goes and he betrays Jesus. He secures a group to come with him. This included the Jewish authorities. What's interesting there in verse 3, it says he procured, he, was, he got together a band of soldiers. Now, when we hear the word band, we may probably picture, if you think back to Sunday school pictures, maybe 10 or 12 soldiers with him on this. But if you go back to the Roman times, they had a legion of soldiers, and they subdivided a legion down to, a, to hear what's called a band, or some translations will call it a detachment of soldiers. In Roman culture, a band of soldiers or a detachment of soldiers was 600 soldiers. So he goes and procures a group of 600 soldiers. At least some of those 600 soldiers would come. And he gets this large group of Jews and Romans together to come armed. Again, look at the end of verse 3. They come with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas procures up to 600 soldiers with religious leaders, arms them to come after Jesus, who's waiting quietly in the garden. And as we see what happens here, there's two key lessons for us, two main ideas this morning from this text I want us to see. And the first one is this. Jesus is absolutely sovereign even over his own arrest. Jesus is absolutely sovereign even over his own arrest. What do we mean by the word sovereign? Well, often we use this in political terms. How about the sovereignty of a nation to decide their laws, to control their, their, their land and who, and who lives there and what happens there. But broadly, sovereignty just means the power and the ability to rule. Sovereignty means the power and the ability to rule. And when we talk about sovereignty in terms of God, God's sovereignty is absolute. God has absolute sovereignty. He is the creator, so he has the right to rule over everything, the right to rule over all the world, over every life in the world, over all the circumstances. He has the right as creator to rule over all. And it's not just God has the right to do so. His sovereignty means he has the power to do so. Sometimes we call that his omnipotence. Omni meaning all. Potence meaning power. Omnipotence, omnipotence. He's all-powerful. He not only has the right to rule over all, he has all power. God has the ability to speak and universe to spin into existence. He has the right to speak and make things happen in his world as he sees fit. But it's not just he has the right to rule and the power to rule, he has the knowledge and the wisdom 
to rule also. We call this his omniscience, omni-all-science knowledge, omni-science, omniscience. That is his knowledge over all that is happening. And friends, even in his arrest here, Jesus is not sitting by passively letting just some type of blind fate or circumstances happen. He's exercising his absolute sovereignty over all these things. He's exercising in his arrest his right to rule over the affairs of the world. He's exercising his power to control what's happening. He's exercising his knowledge of all things. And all this is gloriously on display right here in his arrest because his arrest is happening exactly as he designed and purposed it to happen before time began. Look back at verse number 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? He knows what's going to happen because, well, it's his plan. And he comes forward. Notice, friends, the initiative is Jesus's here. Up until this point, they've been trying to catch Jesus. If you remember all throughout the Gospel of John, they wanted to seize him and he would vanish. He'd disappear from the crowd. Why? Because the phrase in John, the hour had not come. His hour had not come. We've seen that over and over in John. He's sovereign over when this is all going to happen. But, friends, the hour has come. The hour being the time that he had predetermined for his arrest to happen. And so because his hour has come, he doesn't vanish, he doesn't disappear this time into the crowd. Because his hour has come, he steps forward and initiates to the soldiers, who are you looking for? He is in complete control over the whole situation. But there's something even more stunning than that that shows his power, his sovereignty in this situation. Look back at verses 4 and 5. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with him. I don't want us to miss the wonder of verse 5, because our Bible translators who try to help us here kind of cause us to lose a little something here. Because in verse number 5, there is no word he in the original Greek. This is something that was added to make it flow for us. Verse 5 literally reads, They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Period. When he asks who he is, when, they, when he self-identifies here, he uses the name of God that was revealed back in the Old Testament. Being back to Exodus 3, when, when Moses says to God, who do I say sent me? And God says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent me to you. Exodus three fourteen. Jesus is using that identification right here for us in John chapter 18. In verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. He's identifying himself as the great I am, the one who has the name that is above every other name. Unless we miss the power of that declaration when he says before this band of up to 600 soldiers, I am, look at what happens in verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Friends, these non-believing soldiers don't just pause and scratch their head and go, this is a strange way for him to identify himself. When they hear their creator self-identify himself as the I am, they literally start staggering backwards and they collapse on the ground. The soldiers who've come to arrest Jesus, these are not weaklings, they're not emotional, sentimental guys. These are tough Roman soldiers. And here Jesus is standing in the garden. Who do you seek, Jesus? I am. They collapse on the ground. Why? Because they heard the voice of their creator and they were undone. Friends, Jesus is in complete command here, not the soldiers, They fall to the ground when he speaks. Jesus is absolutely sovereign, even over his arrest. If that's not enough, there's more here that shows his sovereignty over this situation. Because Jesus is going to command the soldiers something, and they're going to obey. I mean, think about this for a minute. If you have brought 600 soldiers with weapons, because you're fearing possibly a riot or something, and the prisoner you're coming to arrest says, you have to do something here, you're not going to do that. 
what right is this prisoner here that you're coming with this whole band of soldiers to, has a right to tell you what to do? Well, Jesus speaks and they obey. Look at verses 7 and 8 here. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And they brought the whole detachment of soldiers because they feared possibly there would be a riot or some type of rebellion from his disciples. But Jesus looks at them and says, I'm the one. Let all my disciples go. And we know from other accounts that's what happened. The disciples scatter at that point. Jesus commands them to let his disciples go. And, well, the soldiers obey, though, the person they're coming to arrest because he is so in control of the situation. In fact, this is what Jesus already said would happen. Verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. He's referencing back just to John chapter 17, verse 12. His prayer just a few minutes before this whole situation happened, where he had prayed about not losing any, he'd already promised this would happen in his prayer to the Father. And so what's happening, his command of the situation is just bringing about what he had said would happen. Jesus is absolutely sovereign over his own arrest. But there's still more that shows that. There's still more that shows his power over this situation. After Peter responds rashly here and cuts off the servant's ear, Look at what Jesus says to him in verse number 11. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now we've seen this expression before, to drink the cup is a metaphor. It means to experience something. Now notice Jesus doesn't say, Shall I drink this cup that the soldiers have handed me? He doesn't say, Shall I drink the cup that the religious leaders and Jewish authorities have given to me? Shall I drink this cup that just, well, in chance and the circumstance of life just happened to come together? No. Look back at where the cup is from, verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? He's in such command here that what Jesus is experiencing, this cup of suffering he's experiencing in the garden that night, is the cup that the Father had handed to him before time began that they had determined would be the plan in God's perfect timing. And because the Father had ordained this, because this was Jesus' plan, it happens. Look at verse 12. And don't miss that little word at the beginning of it. What's the first word there in verse 12? So. That word means so. It means therefore. It means accordingly. So 11 and 12 read like this. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cut off his ear. Verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall not drink the cup that the Father has given to me. Therefore, accordingly so, the band of soldiers and their captain, the officers of the Jews, arrested Jesus and bound him. Friends, the reason this is happening is because this was God's plan. He's in total control of this situation. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus had told us earlier would happen. In John chapter 10, verse 17, I want you to see this on the screen here because he's, this is living out now what he told his disciples would happen way back in John 10. He said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Now verse 18, No one takes it from me. That's what we're seeing happen right here. The soldiers aren't taking his life from him. No one takes it from him, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. What we see in the rest of Jesus here is him laying down his life because the hour he had determined has come. His arrest, the timing, the methodology is no accident, no coincidence. It's a sovereign plan of God from before time unfolding right before our eyes. He's triumphant in the midst of the tragedy of the of the situation. Well, there's another truth in this passage I think we need to see beyond just the bigness of God in that, and that's how people respond to that. And our second truth is a sobering warning that we've seen throughout John, and it's simply this. It is possible to see Jesus' great power and not believe. It's possible to see the great power, the sovereign power of God, 
and not be moved to not believe by it. And friends, that's where this text is so incredibly sad, one of the great tragedies of this text. Because we're confronted with two different people here who don't believe. And it's not because they're ignorant. It's not because they've never heard. They have seen, they have heard, and they turn their back on it. The first one we see, and this is none other than Judas himself, one of Jesus' followers. Go back to verses 2 and 3 for what happens with Judas. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place where Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Friends, this is a betrayal of the highest order. Like I mentioned earlier, he had walked with Jesus for three years. They had slept side by side out in the garden as they traveled. They'd eaten together. Judas had taken care of the finances. He had seen the miracle after miracle after miracle. He had heard the teaching and the teachings and the teachings of Jesus. He was in the midst of it all. In fact, he knows Jesus so well, he doesn't have to try to scheme and have some accomplice figure out where Jesus might be going that night. He knew Jesus so well, he knew exactly where Jesus would withdraw. He was that close to Jesus, and he turned on him. But his betrayal is not just some, I want money, so I'm going to live my life down by the beach. As best I can tell, there's a lot of vindictiveness in Judas and how he betrays Jesus. Back in verse 3, Judas procures the band of soldiers. He himself is involved in lining up soldiers and weapons to come after Jesus. And then in verse number 5, we see they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Judas doesn't take his money and run down to the beach and get his beach house to go live like he wants to live and get wealthy now. He procures the soldiers, he arms the soldiers, and he comes with them, and he looks at Jesus with the soldiers with him to point him out to betray Jesus, and he's on the side with the soldiers. Judas saw firsthand the sovereign power of God, and he turned his back on it and did not believe. My friends, he's not the only one here who does that. The soldiers that Judas procured do that as well. Look back in verse number 6. When Jesus said to them, the soldiers, I am... They drew back and fell to the ground. Let me just remind you, this, this band of soldiers, there's a large mass group of soldiers, hears the words of their creator say, I am. They stagger backwards. They collapse on the ground. And then what happens? Well, they finally get their, their breath. They stand back up and they proceed to talk to Jesus again. They encountered firsthand the power so great that it knocked them over. But that's not all they saw. Verse number 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So they see Peter react rashly. Well, John doesn't tell us everything that happens because he's got a point to make. There's something else that happens if you know the story well. Luke chapter 22, verse 50, Luke tells us what happens as well. And one of them, we know who that is here from John, that's Peter, struck the servant in the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now verse 51, what happens here? But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed them. So now picture this. The soldiers who've come to arrest Jesus have heard Jesus proclaim, I am. They stagger backwards. They fall into the ground. They've caught their breath. They've finally gotten back up. Peter strikes out, cuts off the ear. Jesus bends down, picks up the severed bloody ear, goes on the servant, sticks it on the servant, and it reattaches. Miraculously. No stitches, no sending the doctor. And he miraculously heals the guy's ear. The soldiers see this. They've been knocked over by the voice of the Creator. They've seen him physically heal and do what is absolutely impossible. Now, what do they do? Do they relent going, no, 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 I can't arrest a guy like this. This guy must be God. Do they second guess what they're doing? Do they try to persuade others? Hey, how can we do this to this guy? This guy can heal a person whose ear gets chopped off. No. What do they do? Verse 12. The band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. 
They have no excuse. They've heard the voice of the Almighty. They've seen His power. And at least at this point right now, they have unbelief in the face of greatness of Christ there. Friends, it's a sobering reminder that it's possible for us to see Jesus' power, to come face to face with who He is, and to turn and walk away in unbelief. It's true then, and it's true now as well. Friends, we come week by week, and we're encountering the power of God in His Word. God's Word, week by week, as we study it in our life groups, in our Sunday school class, in our Bible studies, in the services here, we're encountered with the glory of Christ. We hear His words that are recorded for us. We see His power on display. And friends, do, are we moved by it? Or do we walk away and go about our normal lives as we come face to face with the power of the Almighty? It's not just in our Bible study that that can happen, friends. Day after day, we're confronted with the power of God in creation. When you hear the rain coming down and you hear the thunder, you see the beauty of a spring day like this, the flowers in bloom, the blue skies. We're experiencing what Psalm 19 tells us, that the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims the work of His hands. Day after day pours forth speech. Night after night proclaims knowledge. There's no language, no voice where His voice is not heard. So in Psalm 19, we're told that the creation tells God's greatness. Friends, do we see that? And are we moved by that to worship? Do we stand and just kind of shrug our shoulders and go back to life as we want to live it on our own? But then day by day, friends, we see God's power work in many other ways. And I don't know what's true for you this week in terms of how you've seen God's power. Maybe God's provided something for you that you needed that you didn't see how else it could happen. Perhaps he's answered some prayer of yours. Perhaps you've just seen him sparing you. Perhaps you've had just a mountaintop experience. Friends, when we experience the power of God like that, does that drive us to worship, drive us to thankfulness? Or friends, do we trample upon that grace and just go back to our sins and go back to life as we want to live in? Friends, Jesus' rest shows us that not only is God sovereign, but it's possible to see that and turn and walk away. And I think with that in view for us, it's fitting for us to reflect on that truth in our lives as in communion this morning. What's going to happen this morning as we celebrate communion in a few minutes is we're going to celebrate what Jesus himself ordained on that Thursday night, this very night where he was arrested, when he was betrayed. If you recall from what happens on that Thursday night, the Jewish people were celebrating the Passover. The Passover was a feast they did to celebrate their freedom from slavery in Egypt. When God spared them, not just with little things, but with mighty displays of his power. You think about the plagues that got sent on Egypt. In mighty strength, God showed himself to be strong and rescued his people. And they celebrated that Passover, the freedom, because of God's mighty power. They were reflecting on the mighty power of God, the sovereign control of God, and they were worshiping him in response to it. And Jesus took that. And he gave new meaning to it. Because now it's not just about freedom from slavery for the Jewish people. It's about freedom from the slavery to sin. See, friends, the Bible is very clear that every single one of us, apart from Christ, is a slave to sin. We can't help sin. We're born sinners. There's an important distinction for us, friends. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're not born good and then we get become sinners because we sin. We are born, from the moment we breathe, we are born sinners. And therefore, sin naturally flows. We are slaves to our sin. But God in his mighty power has come to rescue us from being slaves to sin. And God in his mighty power has come to redeem us and break the curse on us that we might be free to no longer be slaves to sin, but be alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And friends, as we think about communion, we think about what that symbolizes. The question for us in light of John 18 and communion is simply this. Have you seen the power of God and have you believed? Have you seen the power of God? Have you come face to face with who God is and his power? And has it changed you? Has it led you to a place to where you are now different because of who Christ is? 
With that in view, I want to remind us of what we often read, but from 1 Corinthians 11, because it's important for us to realize what we're about to do this morning. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells about what Jesus instituted on that Thursday night. And what Paul tells us is simply this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, John 18 here, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Friends, what we're about to celebrate is something only for those who are followers of Christ, for those who've seen the power of God and they believe. Let me remind us, belief is not you prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, and took the pastor's hand. Belief is you have seen the power of God. You've seen who God is, and it has changed you. True belief is, we've seen that John is receiving a radical transformation from above. It's your life is different because the grace of God is poured out into your life. If you have experienced the power of God, if you have been changed because of the power of God at work in your life, you are welcome to come take this with us. This is not just for gateway people. If you are in Christ, if you believe, you are welcome to come celebrate. But friends, if you're not sure you're a follower of Christ, please don't come. There's a sobering warning I just read. This is only for those who discern, who understand the body and the blood of Christ and what that means for us. There is no shame sitting in your seat and remaining as we come to observe the elements. No one's going to look at you funny on this. If that's you and you're saying, you know, I don't really think I believe the power of God. I'm not sure about this. Stay where you're seated. No one's going to look at you funny for that. And my encouragement to you would be to pray this prayer. God, if you really are real, would you show yourself to me this week? Would you be brave enough, if you are not in Christ, if you don't really believe, to ask the Lord, God, all these people around me, they may be completely crazy. They actually believe this stuff is real. But Lord, either they're crazy or I'm wrong. I'm not sure which it is. Just be brave enough to say, God, if you're real, show me this week. But friends, for those of you who are in Christ, who know that you've encountered the power of God, that you believe because your life is different, because not because of anything you've done, but because of Christ at work in your life. This is not something to do out of habit, that we do it monthly. Something to do is an act of worship and celebration. To thank God that he has shown his power to you. To thank God that his power is at work transforming you, emboldening you, shaping you more into his image. And I pray as you celebrate it this morning, it will bring just fresh faith into your life. It will be a tool of grace as God reminds you to think about the bread and how Christ's body was broken on the cross. How his blood was poured out so that we could have new life. So we could know our creator and be restored to a right relationship with him. I'm about to pray, and then our praise team is going to come, receive the elements, and our deacons are going to come, help you come. If you're new to Gateway, we're going to have you come from where you're seated up front to receive the elements, then go back to your seat. There's no rush. When you get to your seat, you don't have to, like, take it real quickly. Take some time. Meditate on these truths. Ask yourself the big picture question. Have I seen the power of God, and do I believe? And then pray to God and respond in worship and prayer to Him. Let me pray for us, and then our, usher, and then our deacons will come help um, usher you up towards the table. Father, we are so grateful for your grace upon grace. Your grace that looked upon us when we were lost and dead in our sins. Your grace that looked upon us when we had no hope on our own of ever getting to you. God, you would have been completely just to condemn us all. But in your great mercy and love, you looked upon wretched sinners like us, God. And you made a way. Before time even began, you ordained a way for us to be restored to right relationship with you. God, I pray even this morning as we begin the Easter season, 
As we think about what's going to happen in the Passion of the Christ over these next few weeks, and even now as we celebrate communion, think about the bread that represents your body, Lord Jesus. As we drink the juice that represents your blood. God, I pray you would use this in my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters to instill in us fresh eyes of faith this next four or five weeks, God. To really just look upon in awe and wonder this Easter story of triumph through tragedy. And I pray, God, this would not just be something we do this morning and go about our normal lives, but your power that is so great that not soldiers over would be a power that's so great in our lives that we are filled with awe and wonder every day this week as we thank you and worship you for all that you have done. So, Lord, would you do what only you can do during this time? Would you receive praise and honor and worship as your people celebrate communion? And would you send your Holy Spirit to transform us and change us and break us of sin habits, break us of self-centeredness, break us of materialism, break us of whatever it is that's hindering us from selling out for you. And Lord, we'll give you all the praise and we'll look forward to the joy that we'll receive in the process. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.